Welcome to Drivers of Disruption, a podcast covering the latest advancements in the future of mobility, current challenges, and potential solutions moving us forward. I'm your host, Ali Madoc, and in today's episode, we're going to take things to the air and talk about advanced air mobility. Our guests today, thank you for joining us, are Derek Hoke, the CEO of Volocopter, and Brian Yutko, the CEO of WISC. Dirk is a technology expert in the aviation industry who formerly held leading positions at Siemens and Airbus Defense and Space. Today, he's the CEO of Volocopter. Founded in 2011 and headquartered in Bruchel, Germany, they have offices around the world, including in Paris, Singapore, and Munich. Brian brings years of leadership and engineering experience in aerospace and aviation, with a particular focus on electric and autonomous aviation. Prior to joining WISC, Brian served as Vice President and Chief Engineer for Sustainability and Future Mobility at Boeing. Dirk and Brian, thank you. You guys are joining us from opposite ends of the world, and we appreciate having you here today. Good to be here. Glad to be here. Our third guest today is Robin Rydell, a partner at McKinsey who co-leads the McKinsey Center for Future Mobility, and is a global leader of disruptive aerospace sector within McKinsey's aerospace and defense practice. His work focuses on innovative topics in the aviation industry, including advanced air mobility, unmanned aerial systems, and super or hypersonic flight. Before joining McKinsey, Robin held department leadership roles in both the commercial and operations branches of a major airline. And Robin, welcome. Thanks for having us. Exciting topic. Absolutely. So, Robin, the first two episodes of Drivers of Disruption focused on ground transportation. And today we were excited to bring things into the air. And so I'm wondering if you could compare and contrast for me the advantages and disadvantages as we look at future of air versus future of ground transportation mobility. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating question because I think a lot of people compare the air and the ground frequently, um, but they're so different in a way. Mm-hmm. Right? I think let's start with the differences and then then talk about the similarities. I think on the differences side, the fundamental difference is obviously gravity. In aviation, we're always fighting gravity because we always need to kind of stay in the air, and that makes uh, you know the the engineering task quite difficult because you're very much optimizing for weight, much more so than you're doing ground vehicles. And so the question of battery density, the question of lightweight motors and materials is much more central to the design for these vehicles. So there's a whole different discipline in a way of weight optimization that that comes into air vehicles. Secondly, there's a risk um, challenge that is slightly different. I mean, I think in automotive, you know, we have certain expectations of you know, how safe it should be or on the ground. And we have slightly different expectation of how safe the air should be. And, you know, that requires then, of course, a different approach to certification, a different approach to ensuring that safety. And just those two industries have developed differently over the years. And so they have different approaches. And, you know, working with regulators on the automotive side is a very different thing than working with regulators and getting certification on the aviation side. So there's a a big difference there. And maybe the third thing is that the environment you're operating in is very different, particularly for autonomy, right? Um, In a way, and I'm a pilot, so I can talk about this. I'm also a driver, so I have the comparison. It's a lot easier 
to stay in the air than to drive on the ground. On the ground, you might have a, you know, a, a ball flying in front of you. You might have a dog run on the street. You might have a shopping car coming out of nowhere. You have to always be, um, you know, ready to react, right? You don't have that problem necessarily in the sky because the airspace is a little bit wider. You don't get anywhere close to other things, generally speaking. Um, and so you have a little bit more time to react. You have a little bit different of an operating environment, but there's other challenges that come with that. For example, wind or weather that affects you very differently in the air than on the ground. And so as you compress those two, you're solving very different problems, um, you know, as in the air than you do on the ground. Now, there is, of course, you know, very much similarities about how do you build a company that will build a whole new process? How do you think about integrating existing infrastructure, existing models? How do you think about talent? And, you know, automotive and aerospace is competing for the same talent on many of these things, whether it's for power electronics or whether it's for software. And so, you know, there's a lot of overlap there and a lot of lessons that can be learned, you know, by disruptive aerospace from, you know, what we would say was this disruptive automotive, um, you know, or still is when it comes to autonomy, for example. Okay. So to set the scene for those listening today, we are recording this on the heels of the Paris Air Show. I know there are a lot of announcements. I saw, I think each of you, Brian and Dirk, had some announcements there as well. And so Robin, I'm wondering, can you just give us an overview today of the the future air mobility ecosystem and what we can expect, particularly in the advanced air mobility space? Yeah, happy to. And uh, yes, Paris was kind of one of those events where, you know, future air mobility really showed up. I think those of us who've been in the industry have been seeing over the last decade or so a number of new technologies coming up from drones to eVTOL passenger aircraft to sustainable aviation, new propulsion systems. And I think we're now at a moment in time where all of these things are getting ready for commercialization. The technology is in place, the investment is in place. We're getting to a point where customers are asking for it. And so Paris was interesting in the sense that for the first time at a major air show, we really had a significant presence by air mobility players. And you just mentioned, uh, you know, Dirk and, and Brian's presence there. Volocopter was doing daily demo flights, flying the aircraft around the air show. You know, Whisk had their next generation aircraft set up in a chalet for people to see what it will be like to be in one of those. And then many of the other players in the industry had either vehicles there or parts of vehicles there. There was a whole uh, full hall full of, uh, of eVTOL aircraft that advanced air mobility. And so it felt like this part of the industry had kind of finally come out of the fringe into being a main part of the aerospace industry. And while it's still early, while we're still not in commercial service, it really feels like we're ready for takeoff as an industry. And Paris kind of showed that. Let us ask the uh, Brian and, uh, and Dirk about this. You know, as you think about the future and where we are in the cycle, what is air mobility really going to bring to us? What does it look like when you guys are you know, ready to hit the commercial service and passengers are flying? Maybe we'll start with you, Dirk. I think we, we're entering now amazing times. Um, we're very excited of getting started for commercial operation next year in summer in Paris. And it's it's always interesting when we talk to different people. Most of the people think it will happen in 2030s. And when we tell them we will fly next year, they look at us. Yeah, maybe some demo flights. And we know we say commercial operation and the people are still not believing um, that this is really happening. So I think we had, we we start into into an amazing time. Uh, of course, it will be a step by step approach. We will see it in a few cities in the in next year starting. 
And then we will, every year by year, we will see it uh, going into more cities, into more regional areas. And in the 30s, we will, of course, uh, then see that we go from piloted aircraft towards uh, automated and autonomous flying aircraft, which will then enable even faster scaling. So I think in the 30s, we will be used uh, to have another option of mobility in our daily end-to-end mobility concepts. And uh, I think it will be totally normal like using a taxi to use one of the e-tolls either in a city environment or in a regional environment. And uh, yeah, we are very proud and excited to be part of that story. Right. You you agree with that? Or what would you add? Especially, what will it feel like for customers um, to really experience that? Well, yeah. And just back to kind of where you started the question there, I think what this industry is really building is the ability for companies like ours to bring flight closer to where people live. And that can be in urban environments, it can be in regional environments, it can be lots of different markets. But I think ultimately what people will start to experience is an entirely new form of travel that has incredibly high levels of safety, is quiet, and has zero source emissions. Uh, that's a really compelling value proposition. Um, if we can execute on that, so that's kind of one of those one of those you know big societally transformative uh, ideas that I know gets all of our companies and all the people that work in our companies very excited to go execute on that mission. So here at Whisk, what we're focused on is is bringing the first autonomous commercial passenger carrying aircraft to market. We think that we could do that this decade, so we're marching on a plan that has us doing that um, this decade in a certification program right now. Uh, with the FAA and um, and with some partners around the globe. For those of you who are joining us on the video version of this, you will note Robin's very interesting background of model planes and plane paraphernalia. Uh, Robin, you're clearly a fan of this space. And so I'm curious, if you look into your crystal ball, how do you think the advanced air mobility industry is going to change in the coming years? What might that you know, background, the models that you have, how, how might that look different in a few years? And what do you expect to see happen? It, it's a, it's a great question and a, you know, interesting observation. I do think in my background, you see mostly traditional aerospace because that's what I've worked on for the last, you know, 20, 20 plus years. And, you know, the airplanes I fly today. And I do think this will change quite a bit. I do think that, you know, maybe with World Cup the next year and then some of the other players the year after, but by the middle of this decade, we'll, we'll probably have a number of eVTOL player certified uh, vehicles that are going to start scaling up operations. And I think operations will scale, you know, somewhat slowly because we're still experimenting in a way. What are the business models that work? What are the real routes where you have uh, benefits for customers? And so, you know, that's going to take a few years to come out. By the early 2030s, I expect this to be a real industry where, you know, in many of the cities and in some of the rural areas of the world, you can jump on a new type of aircraft that looks completely different, that is smaller, maybe autonomous, probably electric, you know, maybe hydrogen in some cases, to take you on regional and urban trips and provide a whole different way of, of mobility. Now, is it going to scale anywhere, um, you know, to the same scale as, as ground transportation? Probably not in that time frame, but it will be something that many of us and many of our listeners will have access to and will, you know, fly on once in a while. And so I think my background will have a whole bunch of new, weird and fun looking airplane configurations back there as we're kind of building this new industry and as it becomes, uh, 
you know, a thing of everyday life. Very exciting. I mean, hearing all of this talk about where the industry is headed and how quickly players like Whisk and Volocopter are moving the air industry into this advanced space. It feels very similar to me as Tesla is what Tesla did to the automotive industry with electrification. So I'm curious, Dirk, we had talked about this previously, making this correlation and comparison between Tesla and what they did for the industry in, in Whisk and Volocopter. And Dirk, maybe starting with you, what do you think makes Volocopter unique? I know you guys both have different approaches to commercialization. And so I'm curious what you all see as your path to commercialization. So how do we, you know, between now and Paris next year, getting on a, a Volocopter flight, um, what does that look like? No, I, I think we have very complementary approaches and uh, we complement each other very, very nicely. I think um, what we decided to do is that we will start to go into operation with a pilot. Of course, that's an engine situation if you have at the beginning a two-seater. So that means at the end you have only one passenger. Uh, we mostly did that due to the fact that the battery development was not as accelerating as we expected. And therefore, we had to do some compromises. So while we're developing, uh, starting this year, also bigger aircraft, we will go into the certification um, for the type certificate with a two-seater. We currently added the auditing with uh, EASA, and we will start in, in a few days uh, flying the first manned version of the aircraft that we will fly in Paris. And... The teams are really working very hard to, um, to deal with the daily challenges, making sure that we comply on one side. Also, let's say with all the necessary documentation, proving that we know um, how to design and build an aircraft, but on the other side, also building the aircraft that is conforming so that we can uh, come, uh, uh, finish all the flight envelopes that are necessary in total. Just to give you an idea, we need to do more than 150 flight hours with the with the aircraft. And out of these 150, 75 have to be on one aircraft. So we cannot just build 10 and distribute. At the end, we still have to do more than 75 hours on one aircraft. And this is um, this means in order to get there, you have to multiply it by three or four to the amount of flights that are necessary in order to get to these flight hours. One thing that I really like that you guys keep teasing out is the fact that there's there's a lot of symbiosis here in a rising tide lifts all boats within the industry. And Dirk, Volocopter has a, you just talked through Volocopter's approach to commercialization. Brian would love to, to ask you the same question. I know you guys have a slightly different approach, mainly around um, the autonomous element. Can you talk a little bit about what makes WISC unique? And, and how you see your path to commercialization? Sure. Yeah. So um, generally in this industry, I think there's been a um, some amount of recognition that we'd all like to get to a four-seat autonomous aircraft, um, a four-seat aircraft that has significant um, cargo carrying capability for passengers plus their bags. Um, and ideally, you know, obviously an, an uncrewed aircraft so that all the seats are revenue seats, but also that the aircraft can be moved around in what will be generally um, uh, pretty dynamic networks. So um, we've decided to go directly to that end point. Um, that is a riskier approach, 
than uh, than developing a piloted aircraft. Um, we're on our sixth generation of aircraft, so we've flown five prior generations of aircraft. Um, the sixth generation, which we're building now and which we had in Paris, um, that will be the four-seat aircraft uh, that um, that we are in a type certification program in right now with the FAA. Um, so, uh, so our path to uh, to commercialization runs through type certifying the airplane, which we're in the middle of now. It runs through operational approvals for an uncrewed aircraft, which is the very unique aspect that we will have to contend with. Um, and then ultimately, you know, getting into launch cities and all the rest uh, is similar to, uh, to to what some others in the industry are doing. So um, we believe that that uh, that we can accomplish that this decade. We're working on a timeline um, that has us uh, that has us entering into service this decade, and um, and we're really excited to be to be pioneering uh, in the autonomous space. Um, you know, ultimately, I think this is a really kind of fun time in the industry because ultimately, assuming we all have the um, the uh, incredible privilege of being successful on our air, on our aircraft programs and certifying our programs. Uh, we will have the ability to compete over markets. Um, but generally, you know, what happens now is I get a lot of questions about how do you feel about your competitors, and I say, well, we're not competing yet. <laughs> we're we're trying to compete. We hope to have the privilege someday to compete. Um, but right now, uh, we all. Um, have the the privilege right now it feels a little bit more like weightlifting you know we're competing with ourselves to lift the weight and uh, and someday we'll step on a field and uh, and be able to compete about a market that's kind of the best analogy I can make um, but that means it's actually is a really kind of fun time because um, you know it's all builders you know this industry is all full of engineers right now full of builders people that are really trying to do um, what I think even a few years ago, folks thought were impossible. So, um, so, th so that to me is is kind of one of the really fun dynamics about this industry. And and I also I believe that anyhow we I don't see uh, us as competitors at all. Also, in the future the, the market is more than big enough. I think we have also slightly all different um, use cases. And right now, I think I hope also that we learn from automotive that we don't repeat. The mistakes that they did at the beginning, where they uh, it took them a long time for standardization of charging stations. Um, hopefully, we can already use this time that we still have um, in order to come to standardization and agree on the way forward, so that we don't repeat the things that were done not perfectly in the automotive space. I'm, I've been lucky enough to see uh, both of your vehicles and then a couple of others in the industry fly already, and it's a, a truly amazing sight. Um, but you guys have done hundreds, if not thousands, of test flights by now. So tell us a little bit, what have you learned in those? What are kind of the big takeaways? How do they help you shape the experience for the customer and the technology? Maybe, Brian, we'll start with you. You guys have been flying in New Zealand and North America. So what, what have you learned? Yeah, so the team here, um, and there's a lot of credit goes to many, many people that came before I, I even joined the team, um, has been flying since around 2010 or so, and has achieved many of the the first in this industry, you know, first electric VTOL hover and flight and transition and piloted transition and all the rest. And um, what you see, I think, if you look throughout the generations of aircraft, 
is kind of an evolution towards what we think is a very compelling uh, configuration for the aircraft. So you could do a lot of really interesting things with electric flight. Um, and ultimately, we settled on our Gen 6 aircraft, which has 12 rotors, a high wing, um, has a tilting front row of, of rotors, and and um, uh, and has a spacious, you know, four passenger um, compartment. And so um, that sounds very simple to kind of land on a configuration, but uh, the configuration determines many of the underlying technical challenges that need to be solved. And um, so one of the interesting things, if you look at our Gen 5 aircraft that's flying today, um, without getting too technical, um, it has uh, it has fixed pitch rotors. So it has rotors that don't change the pitch as they're as they're rotating, um, and um, and it has a separate cruise propeller on the back of the aircraft. And making that configuration work during transition, and transition refers to the phase of flight between when you're flying like a helicopter and when you're flying on the wing like an airplane. Um, making that control system work automatically. Uh, is very challenging because there are vibrations that need to be contended to as part of the flight control system. And so much of what, uh, you know, the early work has done is making that a very robust um, uh, system to be able to do those kind of flight tests routinely through transition. Um, but ultimately, you know, the, the simple answer to your question, uh, Robin, is that there are many, many thousands of lessons learned, all of which then find their way into the thinking around the product and ultimately how to certify uh, very robustly the product and the underlying systems. Thanks for that. Dirk, what, what are some of the big findings you've had flying around? Because you've flown all over the world as far as I've you know, yeah, followed yeah. some of your news releases. Yeah, it started all with the uh, very famous flight of one of our founders on a yoga ball in 2011. Um, so this, this went viral and this also encouraged them to continue. Uh, then they continued to have a first flight of a real vehicle in within a, a factory hall and then developing through different prototypes to, towards, um, today's water city model. Um, of course it was all about optimizing the different components. Um, we had three intentional, um, there was maximum safety. Then, of course, lowest noise possible, and then, of course, no emission. Um, regarding lowest noise possible, it was always to look at how how we can have a combination of the amount of rotors and motors and the size of the rotors, of course, and also about the tip speed in order to get to the minimum noise possible. And that this has been uh, a focus throughout the different development phases, ensuring that... that uh, we can ensure that we can really fly into cities in the future because we don't add to the stress level of people living in cities as of today. And then, of course, um, looking at the flight controls, it was all about um, ensuring that we we reach the maximum safety level, not only on 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 calculation theory uh, by achieving ten to minus nine uh, the same safety level as as a commercial aircraft. Uh, which means uh, one critical mistake in a one billion operation hours, but also to to demonstrate that uh, we have really looked at all different safety aspects that we have um, seen how the vehicle behaves with strong winds, um, what does it mean 
um, in the diff flying closer to objects because these are exactly the discussions that we have currently uh, with the authorities because they want to be sure that nothing unforeseen can happen when we start operation. So it's a it's a long way from a first flight. That first manned flight was 2011. Then, of course, through different versions. Um, for us, the public test flight. You see, this was not so much a marketing topic. It was more about also to test public awareness and public reaction. And what we have seen in many occasions that people that have been rather resistant to, to adapt these new technologies, once they have seen and heard our vehicle, they, they, they were converted and they became ambassador for the new technology. So this is why we try to fly public uh, test flight as often as possible. And uh, this will, of, of course, also for the time when we start operation in Paris, the main key aspect is, is to get public acceptance. This is also why we promoted the emergency medical services, because we can save lives by applying these technologies, by, by having a um, um, low noise, no emission vehicle bringing doctors in, in a shorter time to an accident and in the second version then flying the patient to a hospital, it will save lives on top. So beside the use case, it's a lot of work to not over, only overcome the certification hurdle, but really to get public acceptance, which is needed to scale the system. Ryan, I'm curious from an you know, uncrewed or autonomous perspective, how is the public reacting to that approach? Because I think there's always maybe one step further to say getting on an airplane that looks completely new or getting on an airplane that looks completely new and also doesn't have a pilot. Uh, any, any reflections on that or early learnings from you? Yeah, I have a, I have a pretty, in general, I have a pretty moderate opinion about most things, but I have a strong opinion about this one. And typically, um, you know, people will say, well, we did a survey and what we learned from our survey is X percent of people will or won't go on an autonomous thing. And I simply do not believe those surveys, either for aviation or for ground vehicles or for any other things, because I think it's so hard to accurately um, kind of assess uh, something that people have never experienced. As an example, um, I just took my first, uh, maybe a few months ago, my first cruise uh, autonomous car without a driver in it. And... Um, and it was incredible. And if you surveyed me ahead of time, I don't think that I would have any idea how to say, what is this going to be like? Um, because, you know, it, it I, I had never experienced it before. So um, so one of the things that we know for certain is that uh, this system must be safe and it must have a value proposition, a very high value proposition. And if it's safe and has a very high value proposition, then history tells us that it will be adopted. And the the most simple example that I can give you, which I often give to this question, is to imagine um, surveying people uh, in the mid-2000s about hitchhiking to work. And if you surveyed people about hitchhiking to work in the mid-2000s, you would probably get a 1% acceptance ratio. And yet, Robin, I can almost guarantee that you have taken an Uber to our office once or a rideshare of some type. Um, and uh, now, would most call that you know hitchhiking? No, um, but certainly you're using a new technology device to get into the back of a stranger's car. 
And so why do we do that? Well, we do that because it's been proven statistically at scale to be safe. Uh, and it's been proven to have a high value proposition. And so people will tend to adopt it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can be blind to what it takes to to for to have customers engage with an autonomous aircraft. In fact, that we think that there's a tremendous amount of innovation in thinking about how people will interact with an uncrewed system, an uncrewed aviation system for the first time. So we have a design studio here uh, where I'm sitting in Mountain View, California, where we've now brought hundreds of people um, who are who are just general customers in this industry through our design studio to understand how to very precisely design the system so that people feel safe in it. Robin, we've talked a lot about the challenges so far, and I know you've studied this industry quite a bit. What are the unlocks that it's going to take to actually get us here to commercialization? It's a, it's a great question, Ali. I think, you know, as much as I can see this future of this industry, you know, it is less clear on how we get there because of the things that need to happen, right? So there's basically four things that I personally think we need to figure out for this industry to truly take off. Um, those four things are we need to figure out public acceptance and getting the public really engaged in this. We need to figure out certification across both aircraft and ground uh, and airspace and operator. We need to figure out the economics. How do we really make the economics of this work? And then lastly, we need to figure out infrastructure. And so let me kind of give you a little bit of more detail on each of those. I think on public acceptance, you know, if we don't have the public on our side, it will be very tricky to get these things into the air. We'll have you know, people not wanting them in their backyard, not wanting the infrastructure, not wanting to fly on them. And so the sooner we can kind of get the public on board, explain to them what is this about, how it benefits them, the better. Um, I do think, secondly, on certification, you know, the certifying, um, you know, agencies have done real progress in the last couple of years on defining how do we think about certifying these vehicles. But technology is moving fast. There's lots of innovation there. Regulation will need to keep up with that. We need to make sure this is absolutely safe so we can't cut any corners. And so there's going to be this tension about can we get regulation that really enables this to be a useful mode of transportation while keeping us fully safe. And, you know, that is something that, you know, still needs to get worked out. There is a pass forward, but, you know, in some of the details, you know, there's still open questions. And so that is the second big unlock. And, you know, again, the regulatory agencies, EASA, FAA, are, are actively working on that. But there's work to be done. I think on the economics, the interesting question there is, you know, can we really make this work at a price point where, you know, maybe not everyone, but many people can have access to this, right? And that requires us to have built lots of aircraft so we can economies of scale on the aircraft. It means that we probably need things like autonomy. It probably means that we really need high utilization of the aircraft. So fly them a lot during the day so we can share the cost of the aircraft. And that requires new business models. And, you know, that is a big unlock that we need to figure out. Um, look, and lastly, infrastructure, right? This is only a useful mode of transportation if it actually gets me to where I want to go. And so we need lots of landing sites in places where people want to go and want to depart from. And, you know, anything building infrastructure on the ground is a, is a pretty big deal. Uh, you know, it takes money, it takes public acceptance and engagement, it takes, you know, land, it takes regulation, involvement by communities. And so, you know, that is another big unlock. We need to build that infrastructure. So 
those are kind of four things that you could argue stand in the way of this really taking off. But there are also things lots of people are working on. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll get there. Brian, I really like that point um, that you made around there, there's a lot of great potential here. And Dirk, this is something that we had talked about before we started recording and would love both of your thoughts on, you know, we we talk a lot about the challenges, right? So we've spent time today talking about the regulatory challenges around public acceptance, but there's also a lot of opportunity here. What are some of those opportunities that you, that you think don't get talked about enough when it comes to the future of this technology? And Dirk, maybe start with you and then Brian. Yeah, I mentioned one of it. This is the emergency medical service, yeah. uh, just enabling uh, instant uh, application. We also see that, of course, uh, we always talk about the big cups flying from the airport downtown. That's a very obvious business case. But we also we have to talk about connecting the unconnected. Um, we have a lot of areas, be it in, in Europe, be it in the US, where we have, we have people that have no direct link to a mass transportation system. That We also see that certain areas develop slower because there's no real uh, transportation hub. And we, we can see that once you have an idea how to build a hub, we have already discussions with uh, real estate developers. They're saying, if you, if you can certify a verdict board, we are willing to develop residential and commercial areas around it because we know it will be connected. It will not be replacing a mass transportation system, but it starts to be attractive for a lot of people having another opportunity of using another new modality, for example, to fly from a not-so-connected area to an airport. Uh, so I was in, in Bogotaton and we were flying with a general aviation um, terminal and it took us two hours to get to the airport for a one hour 20 flight. Uh, that makes no sense. I think uh, we need to also understand that we have already reached in 2007 more than 50% of the population moving into urban areas and this is accelerating towards 70% right now. Uh, it will increase the problems because these cities have not been built to these or developed at the beginning so that they can cope with the amount of people. And you cannot just add simply another um, rail, uh, rail system or an underground traffic. So this is, this is something that needs 20 years, billions of euros of investment. In some areas, it's not even possible. So, so we need to look at what other options we can add in order to to give the people more options where to decide where they want to work and where they want to live. If you think about the underlying technologies that are enabling this and what it might enable in the future, um, I think it, it, this sort of goes in two directions. One is that we may see um, more small aircraft, which are maybe bigger than the ones that Dirk, Dirk and I are building right now, um, but we may see kind of a, a growth of an industry um, in the small aircraft market. So, you know, think aircraft that are two to 20 seats or something. I picked that up randomly. But, um, but you know, you, you might start to see the increase of air travel options in this small airplane market in a way that doesn't exist today. And I think that's really exciting. Uh, and it's exciting because it's being built from, you know, a zero emission standpoint and all the rest. So there's just this tremendous opportunity. What's also cool, in my opinion, is that these technologies may find themselves in large airplanes too. And so if you think about um, autonomy, 
uh, it's really a scale agnostic kind of a technology because you're thinking, you know, largely that these are sensors and compute and software, and it's not so easy in a very kind of simple way to say, well, I'm going to take that from my four seat airplane and put it in my 400 seat airplane. Um, but there are actually similarities. And I think one of the very interesting but unappreciated um, things that we can accomplish here as an industry is pioneering some kind of means and methods in the smaller plane space for enabling uncrewed operations and so on that turn into safety enhancements in the large airplane space. And that doesn't mean taking large airplanes and making them uncrewed, but it means um, you know the innovations that we come up with for human factors, for you know how someone looks at a screen, supervises an aircraft. Well, can that help how we design flight decks in the future so that piloted aircraft are are even safer? Thank you for that. I mean, that's a that's a fascinating perspective on on what this might look like. Let me shift the the discussion a little bit to a, to a slightly different topic, which is looking at your companies. You're building a brand new industry and brand new companies. There's a big question about what do you do internal versus what do you partner with, right? So the level of vertical integration. We've seen different players in the industry take different positions on that from the extreme where some are building everything in-house from building the motors to building the vehicle to operating to being a ride-sharing platform and others being you know, very much focused on, no, we're just going to integrate an airframe, but we're not going to operate and we're not going to build components. Where on that spectrum do you guys fall and what's the rationale behind where you've landed on that, this level of integration versus partnering? Maybe, Dirk, we'll, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think um, I wasn't involved in, in the current vehicle at the beginning that these decisions were taken, but I can tell you that uh, as we start developing the next generation vehicle right now, we have a very um, thorough thinking process on the make-or-buy and the core non-core. Um, I strongly believe that uh, the success of a next generation vehicle is clearly depending on the quality of the electric drivetrain and the battery system. So these are two critical components where we will in any case uh, not rely completely on sub-suppliers. Um, we will always be involved to a certain degree um, in order to have own IP and also own knowledge on these topics. So these are critical components for us. Um, many other topics, of course, uh, we would like to see more competition, also to see, um, let's say, uh, several suppliers. Um, we don't want to be in, uh, dependent on one single source. So this is something we also will look at. But uh, yes, um, I think the collaboration for us is very important. We also believe that we we will have a similar function like Boeing and Airbus had for the whole commercial aircraft uh, uh, ecosystem. Uh, I think WISC and us and others will play a vital role in building this uh, ecosystem for UAM, RAM, AAM, whatever you want to name it, but for electric uh, vehicles, uh, which will also be very attractive for the supply chain because we talk about a different quantity of our vehicles than you have in aerospace. In aerospace, you talk about hundreds. Automotive, you talk about millions, and we will be somewhere in between, uh, which is, in my opinion, very attractive for aerospace uh, suppliers. 
Brian, where, where are you guys headed from a vertical integration point of view? Obviously, you have the power of Boeing behind you as your, main, you know, as your only shareholder, I guess, by now. Um, but what's, what's the thinking there? How much do you rely on industry versus inventing it in-house? So we're an extremely vertical team. We build almost everything on our existing airplanes um, today. Um, it doesn't mean that we'll always stay that way, but um, but pioneering, you know, the first commercial autonomous aircraft at the levels of safety that we're talking about um, require a very deep understanding of all of the underlying subsystems and and how they affect one another. And, um, and many of the systems that we're talking about cannot be easily purchased off the shelf at the levels of integrity that, um, that, uh, that ultimately are required. Um, now we, uh, we have started working with some partners. So, you know, up to, up to, uh, generation five, um, the aircraft really was, you know, very, very substantially, um, built in house, um, generation six. Uh, we will still be extremely vertical, you know, when you compare with Robin, you know, the traditional aviation industry. Um, but, uh, but we have started working with uh, some key partners on, on, uh, on some key subsystems where we think that that's most appropriate. But, um, but if you compare the balance between, you know, existing uh, successful commercial aviation industry and what we're doing here, we're much closer to the, to the, to the vertical um, side of house. Thank you. One, one other question I would love to ask you guys. Both of you have worked in major aerospace, you know, incumbents organizations in the past. Brian, you at Boeing and, and Dirk, you at, at Airbus. And now you're running a startup um, in the aerospace world, trying to disrupt some of what, uh, you know, the, the uh, other players have built over, you know, 80, 100 years or so. How, how do you feel you know, work is different for you as you're now working at a smaller, more agile player trying to bring around the disruption. And how do you engage with some of the incumbent organizations that you used to be part of to bring them along in this? Uh, what are some of the learnings or observations for that? Maybe we'll, we'll start with you, Dirk, and then go to Brian. No, first of all, um, I have a lot of friends at Airbus and I, I continue to admire what the company is doing. And um, I, I, I really learned a lot during this time, which now I can apply. And I do do I see us as a disruptor for Airbus and Boeing? Uh, no, but maybe as accelerator for a change of minds on certain topics. And uh, this hopefully helps us all um, to accelerate decarbonization. And uh, no, we, 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 we strongly believe that we have people from all over the world in our team. We have a very diverse team, almost 60 nations. We have, of course, a lot of people from Airbus, Boeing, Embraer, uh, you name it. Yeah, so of course, because where do the people learn their knowledge about uh, aircraft, um, be it fixed wing or rotating equipment? You learn it at the best. And uh, these have been dominating our aerospace uh, community for the, the last hundred years. And of course, there's a reason why they're so successful. So we, we also believe in that competence. And of course, um, we build on that. Um, saying that, what is different? Um, good and bad. Um, of course, sometimes I would like to have my team of, of aerospace engineers in certain topics. But sometimes also I'm excited to see the motivation, dedication, and the purpose-driven team that we have and how passionate they work to get things done. Um, 
And th this is um, not always as structured as it would have been in Airbus, but definitely with a huge drive of energy and uh, with a lot of commitment to solve the problem. So uh, we find every day new challenges, but the good thing is the team always gets up um, being more encouraged to solve it and, and having an incredible amount of dedication and energy. Um, and what I like the most is the passion that you see the the glimpse in the eyes when they talk about our product and about how we will go into operation next year. You see the excitement, you see the, the how much they will dedicate to make that happen. I mean, Brian, now that you know, Whisk is owned by Boeing, are you getting the best of both worlds? Tell us a bit about how that works for you. I was going to say, what a great lead-in. Um, that's that is uh, that's exactly how we think about this. So we think about the relationship with Boeing as being a real differentiator for us in the industry. If you look at a company like Boeing, um, it is it is so deep and it has so much expertise and it has this global footprint that is so hard from the outside to even to even start to comprehend. You know how amazing this company and this machine is when you really go around and you say, oh my gosh, look at all of the, the markets that are served here and the technology that is developed here and the expertise and the engineers and how many and the footprint. And it is, I could just go on and on and on. Now, the challenge, of course, is that, is that um, you know, when, when, that, when that machine gets lined up around executing against one goal, there's almost nothing the world can do to stop it. It is just, you know, it, it's built to take on some of the biggest challenges in the world. Um, but get it, but doing the first step, right? Getting, getting, getting everything kind of lined up to go um, take something on. Um, that's typically the challenge in large companies is is um, is kind of the self organization problem in some ways. Um, at least that's my perspective on it. Um, so what we what what we have here at Whisk, which is really unique, is a product development that is completely focused on one goal. Everyone wakes up every day and thinks about how do I certify Gen 6, the first commercial certified autonomous aircraft. That's what everybody thinks about. And what's really cool about the relationship with Boeing is we try to get the kind of best of both that you talked about there. Um, we try to do the one plus one is three um, kind of subject. And um, and how you mechanize that? There's a lot of art in that. That's not a science. That's you know how how you get the right you know senior tech fellows at Boeing, who have the deepest experience in the whole industry on some subject and you know some individual subject. How you get them contributing to the WISC program when that subject comes up? Um, there's some art in how you actually do that. But when you do that, magic happens. I have one more question uh, I would love to ask you guys, and that is, you know, there's a lot of talk about the eVTOL industry and the advanced air mobility industry, a lot of perspective. What is the biggest misconception out there that you're facing? And, you know, this is a chance to clear it up. What are the things that people get wrong about the, the industry we're talking about here? That's that's a difficult question. I, I think right now, let's say what, what we see as the biggest challenge is um, this the speed of battery development. I, I I think we all assumed it would be much faster. I think the biggest misconception, this may not surprise you, is that um, many folks think that autonomy is a subject for tomorrow. 
And in fact, we believe that it's ready and is a subject for today. And if we want it tomorrow, then we have to start today. And um, and that means, you know, building the airplanes, all the you know fun things that we do here. It also means having the regulatory regimes uh, be ready to accept such aircraft in very safe ways, and so on. And and uh, and if we want to achieve that, uh, as we've said, you know, this decade, or as others have said, even in 2030 or in the early 2030s, um, well, we need to start on that today because that's how long it takes. Well, look, thank you, gentlemen, for, for making the time. It's been you know, fascinating, as always, to talk about you know, the future of air mobility and hear your views on that and spend you know, really building it right now. So thank you for making the time uh, to get, engage in the discussion. I learned a lot, and uh, I very much look forward to flying on one of your vehicles in the not-so-distant future. Uh, I guess I'll have to uh, go to Paris next year. <laughs>